Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 238, The Fight Back. I still have a special sponsor, and I mean super cool Studio Regent Wireless Headphones. I love them, I wear them in many places, they're not in bed yet. They sound as clear as a bell, they're so easy to use after all those wire-based ones that I've had to throw away over the last six years. And actually, they look great too. And when they look great, I look great. But it's not just all about me, because there's a special 15% discount for all of you as well. Just go to studiosweden.com, enter England when you order. Let me remind you that I'm also a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord of independent podcasters. Agora Podcast of the Month is not actually a podcast, it's a Facebook site, the Agora Podcast Listeners Forum, where we meet digitally to discuss topics we raise or listeners raise. It's a full and frank exchange of views, so come along. Just hop along to the Facebook and search for Agora Podcast Listeners Forum, and there you will find us. At the moment on the members' shedcast, we have a three-parter on Thomas Cromwell, along with a quiz, a poll, and a prize draw for an original coin. So, now may be the time for you to join. If so, just go to the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, hit Become a Member, and let the good times roll. Last time, then, I cruelly left you hanging from a cliff. Sorry about that. Just to refresh your memories, by the summer and autumn of 1538, Cromwell was concerned at the possibility of a reaction by religious conservatives. Stephen Gardner had returned from his diplomatic duty in France, and the Conservative faction were doing their very best to play on the King's hatred of disunity by bigging up the discontent being caused by the pace of religious reform. And against this background was Henry's fear of European isolation, as Charles V and Francis I seemed to be coming not just to a truce, but maybe even an alliance. 
and that would leave England looking very exposed in the playground of international diplomacy. The Conservative faction around the King was led by one of the grandest of the noblemen, Henry Courtney, Marquess of Exeter. You all know the Courtney's pretty much kings down there in the southwest in Devon and Cornwall. You may not know that dangerously, Exeter was also a grandson of the Yorkist king, Edward IV. Despite this, the relationship between Exeter and the king was very good. Exeter was given a favoured position at the christening of Prince Edward, for example. Conversely, the relationship between Courtney and Cromwell was poisonous and had been since they temporarily colluded to bring down Anne Boleyn. To add to their violent religious disagreement, Courtney also fell firmly into the anti-Oik camp. In his view, Cromwell was a jumped-up Oik who should no way be so powerful and close to the king. Courtney's fellow Conservative Nicholas Carew shared the same views, made much worse by his ejection from the council at Cromwell's hands and the humiliating climb-down he'd been forced to make in Princess Mary's submission. There's no doubt that Courtney and his supporters at court hated Cromwell and hated his religious changes. There's little doubt also that they talked. Courtney was reported to have said, I trust to have a fair day upon these knaves which rule around the king, and I trust to see a merry world one day. He was reported to have said this to one Lord Montague. Now this Lord Montague was actually called Henry Pole, and he was the eldest son of Margaret Pole and grandson to George, Duke of Clarence, and therefore, in theory at least, yet another claimant to the throne. He was also, as you will probably have guessed from his name, brother to Cardinal Reginald Pole, Henry's most hated and feared enemy and critic, living in exile in Rome. Pole wasn't just a critic of Henry, he was also a cardinal, obviously, you know, the clues in the name. He was well-connected in England and actively sent by the Pope on more than one occasion to try to bring Charles V and Francis I to military action against Henry. Reginald Pole wasn't just a religious opponent, he was an active traitor who wished to remove Henry from his throne. Cromwell saw in this an opportunity, an opportunity to stop the Conservative faction in their tracks. If he could bring Courtney and his closest allies down, he would not just weaken the anti-evangelical message around the king, he would maintain his own authority and influence in the face of their challenge and keep the ball of reform rolling. He knew that Henry had a pathological fear of rebellion and disloyalty. He was obviously, and sensibly, worried about the foreign threat as well. And Henry was personally affronted by Reginald Pole, by whom he felt betrayed after he had patronised and supported him in his education and groomed him from the top. And so it was that on the 3rd of November 1538, the news exploded through the court that Courtney, his wife Gertrude and their son Edward, Henry Pole and Edward Neville had all been arrested. They had been accused of high treason, specifically for devising to maintain, promote and advance Cardinal Pole, late Dean of Exeter, enemy of the king beyond the sea and to deprive the king. It all sounds a little dicey with a certain lack of hard evidence since Cromwell then wrote to his king, hoping that Almighty God shall bring all things to light that any ungodly and untrue persons have conspired against your grace. So, not a lot of evidence already in place then. However, things were not as dicey as they might have seemed, because Cromwell had in his possession one Geoffrey Pole, the younger brother of Henry and Reginald. And actually, of all the brothers, it had been Geoffrey who had initially been the most publicly opposed to the Reformation Parliament. 
he'd supported a Catholic polemicist who'd fled to the continent. Chapuis seems to have used Geoffrey as a conduit to communicate with his brother Reginald. He'd fallen out and had violent arguments with his local rivals, so much so, in fact, that Geoffrey had been indicted for riot. For years, Henry had refused to admit him to court. In 1538, Geoffrey seems to have panicked, and he decided that he needed to make his peace with the king, so he went to Cromwell. He went to explain why he'd helped his exiled Catholic polemicist and make sure nobody thought this meant he was being disloyal. Sadly, it turned out that's exactly what people thought it meant. Unbeknownst to him, the folks he had annoyed locally had also been digging up the dirt and sending it to Cromwell, and before he could say Catholic polemicist, the doors of the tower had closed on Geoffrey with a clang. Actually, although the politically significant story is all about Exeter, the really interesting human story is more about Geoffrey and his wife Constance. It's all rather tragic, so I'll add a bit at the end about how that all ends. But in the meantime, in prison, Cromwell worked on Geoffrey for two months. There's no suggestion of torture specifically, but there's constant threats, pressure and interrogation, and Geoffrey cracked. He firstly confessed only to approving of Reginald's actions and having talked to others, including his brother Henry Pole, about reversing religious policy in England. Then, appalled at the tool he'd given to his enemies against him and his brother, Geoffrey tried to kill himself by smothering himself with a pillow. Surely that would be impossible. Anyway, he did. Geoffrey Pole was married to one Constance Packenham. Cromwell had Constance brought to the tower as well, and she was examined. Cromwell seems to have manipulated this relationship between Constance and her husband because Constance let it slip to hubby that his brothers thought he was as mad as a box of cheese. Then in a fit of fear and pique, Geoffrey then let slip incriminating evidence about his brother Henry. How he'd smuggled Geoffrey over to Calais to talk with Reginald, how they'd passed secrets to Catherine of Aragon before her death. And he also put Cromwell in touch with Henry's servants, who dished yet more dirt about him. Constance then quickly realised just how indiscreet her brother had been, and she got a message to Henry Pole that he was in danger. But the warning came too late and he was taken. Despite everything that was thrown at Exeter, most of it was probably trumped up. There was certainly no evidence that Exeter was planning a revolt and his loyalty to the king was strong. But mud thrown in the poisonous and febrile atmosphere of the Tudor court had a good chance of sticking and so it proved here. Exeter was found guilty by his peers in Westminster Hall on the 3rd of December and he was beheaded on Tower Hill on the 9th of December 1538. His wife Gertrude who, by the way, was the daughter of William Blunt, Lord Mountjoy, Henry's companion in studies in his youth, was also attainted, but was released in July 1539. But his son Edward Courtney, now presumably the inheritor of the senior blood of the Yorkists, was to stay in the tower all the way through to 1553, after the accession of Queen Mary. Also executed was Henry Pole and Edward Neville. It's likely that neither were much more guilty than Courtney was. Edward Neville's real crime may have been, in fact, that he was trying to get his hands on a monastery that Cromwell had his eye on as well, though he was accused of calling Henry a beast and worse than a beast. Henry Pole may technically have been guilty under the 34 Treason Act, but his were really the actions of a disaffected family rather than a coherent plot. His mother, Margaret Pole, had been arrested too, but was not yet given the chop but the chop remained threateningly in place and she remained in fear of said chop in the tower. 
Nicholas Carew lasted a little longer but was arrested on the 31st of December. His crime was to receive unspecified traitorous letters and saying, get this, I marvel greatly that the indictment against the Lord Marquess was so secretly handled and for what purpose, for the like was never seen. A rather mild statement, it has to be said. It's a good job it didn't have Twitter in Tudor times. People would have been executed in droves. Anyway, although I'm clearly being distracted and warbling, as I say, I got interested in the story of Constance Pakenham and her husband Geoffrey Pohl. Geoffrey was also indicted, tried and convicted. Constance herself was not tried, and before Geoffrey was executed, she made a plea for his life, pleading that her husband was so ill as to be as good as dead. Certainly there was evidence since Geoffrey had tried for a second time to kill himself. Maybe this worked, or more probably it was a deal stitched up in return for his evidence, because on the 2nd of January 1539, Geoffrey was indeed pardoned. And while Cromwell was around, he seems to have been as good as his word in honouring whatever deal he'd made, because Geoffrey even won a property case, while the rest of his family was being attainted of all their property. Lord knows how Constance coped with all of this, because Geoffrey seems to have gone straight home and assaulted the people who'd chopped him to Cromwell. Again, Constance wrote to Cromwell for help, and he had the charges of assault dropped. But Cromwell wasn't around when he was then accused of assault later in 1540. But again, by writing this time to the Privy Council, Constance seemed to have kept her husband free. Thereafter, things go quiet for a few years, and they were even granted some of Geoffrey's mother's property after Margaret was executed. But after Henry VIII's death, the following year in 1548, Geoffrey dabbled again with treason and was implicated in a plot in Ireland against the new king, Edward VI. And this time, he had to flee England, leaving his wife and children and going to join his brother, Reginald. Of children, incidentally, there were 11. Constance had given birth to five sons and six daughters by the time her husband died. During this time, family connections may have protected Constance. She was related to the Duke of Northumberland, and from the continent, Geoffrey wrote trying to get Northumberland to help him return to England. Geoffrey and Constance seemed to have hated being apart, or at least we have a letter from Geoffrey telling Constance of his pain at their separation. Who knows really what Constance thought? Finally, with Catholic Mary on the throne, he was allowed back home, but back to new dangers. Edward Courtney, son of the executed Marquis, had also been released by Mary and he was pretty sure that madness or no madness, Geoffrey had shopped his father and he threatened to kill him. We don't know how much he meant it because despite being mixed up in another conspiracy in 1556, Geoffrey managed to die in his bed in 1558, which is a bit of a turn up for the books actually. Constance, meanwhile, lived for another 12 years after his death and in her will specifically asked to be buried next to her husband. There's a story in all of this it would be lovely to know more about. Constance does indeed seem to have been a model of constancy. And theirs was a relationship which would seem to have survived pretty much everything fate, foolishness and madness could throw at it. Right, digression over, back to it. Sadly, if Cromwell thought he'd scotched the conservative threat, he was wrong. Because events were conspiring against him and against the cause of evangelism. It was foreign affairs that were really not helping. Delegations from Luther and Germany had been over to England, but Henry was rather turned off since the delegations seemed to think their job was to criticise him for not being evangelical enough. 
And also, they refused his dearest wish, which was actually for the brilliant Lutheran theologian Philip Melanchthon to visit. He was too busy, apparently. German delegations were therefore doomed to live in rat-infested accommodation in London, from where they whined continuously and piteously. On the other side of the religious divide, in December 1538, Pope Paul III decided enough was enough and he excommunicated Henry, who he declared to be a most cruel and abominable tyrant. It might have been the destruction of Becket's tomb that finally did the job as it happens. Of course, the only surprising thing is that it had taken so long, and even Henry must have been fully prepared. But of course, nor will it have helped Henry's paranoia. The Pope had, after all, just absolved all his subjects from their obedience to him. The Pope sent his favourite enemy of England, Reginald Pole, on a tour of Europe to whip up support for an anti-English alliance. He himself was working to bring peace between Charles V and Francis I. He made David Beaton, the Archbishop of St Andrews, a cardinal to bolster the Scots against the English. Whatever Henry's doctrinal wobblings would be, there was one place where the Weebles neither wobbled nor fell down. The Pope was always an evil usurper of royal power, just an ordinary bishop as far as Henry was concerned. The stream of aggressive, strident and sometimes slightly unhinged anti-papalism made it quite clear where the Pope could locate his bull. For example, at one point in 1539, a pageant on this very theme was organised on the Thames played out before the gratified eyes of the king and eyes gratified or otherwise of Londoners. Two barges put into the middle of the river. One was manned by a crew representing the king and his council, the other by some folks dressed up as pope and cardinals. The two boats met in combat and they grappled until eventually the papal barge was worsted and its contents chucked into the river, accompanied no doubt by cheers and celebrations. More seriously, Cromwell and Henry were painfully aware that they were trying to change a thousand years' allegiance. The flood of propaganda from sermons to learned treatises to groups of players travelling around the countryside acting out plays was constant. And it was a powerful national narrative. It told how, for generations, England had groaned under the tyranny of the bishops of Rome who had usurped the authority of those to whom all obedience is due, God's vicar on earth, namely the Roman emperors and their successors, the princes of Christendom. How the hour had come to throw off this yoke, renounce their greedy and vain display of the popes. And that here was Henry, the new Constantine, ruling the empire of the English with truth, light and justice in his train. It might sound a bit obvious, slightly cheesy even, but we are too remote in time and culture maybe to easily accept the reverence with which the monarchy and the king himself was held by the vast majority. We, and a titchy tiny number of contemporaries, might see a brutal killer and we might argue about that. The vast majority saw a dazzling display of confident power and magnificence ruling in almost religious majesty, a man with all the confidence of his birth. I don't emphasise this enough. Whatever his faults, Henry knew how to impress. He knew how to connect with his people. He had charisma. Even the pilgrims of the Pilgrimage of Grace firmly believed that he was their loving father, just led astray by the likes of Cromwell. And meanwhile, it has to be said that the popes just couldn't help themselves from giving the story a helping hand. Pope Paul III made efforts at reform, but 
He was a Farnese and part of the noble and secular struggles of Italy. Sister had been a mistress of Pope Alexander VI. As a young cleric, he'd ignored the thing about no sex pleas with a string of mistresses and five children. One of his very first actions as Pope was to get his two grandsons, aged 14 and 16, created cardinals, and he would continue to get his hands dirty with the politics of temporal power. However, he did at least institute this reform programme, however criticised it was, and from the start he considered the use of a council, a general council of the church, to help in that reformation. The Council of Trent, which would define and invigorate a Catholic reformation, would be finally convoked in 1546. It had a long gestation period, and Henry was very worried as that gestation was going on, because it would not be as easy for him to reject the authority of a general council as it had been to reject papal authority. So he set his people to work to rubbish such a council. What they came up with was the idea that a general council of the church would only be legitimate if it was held under the auspices of secular princes. But it was a bit of a weak argument. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The really big threat that kept Henry and his council up all night, though, was the latest round in the story of the struggle for European dominance between Valois and Habsburg. Because in June 1538, under the aegis of the Pope, the two agreed a 10-year truce. And then, in January 1539 at Toledo, they agreed not to conclude any separate agreement with England, which was often the precursor to war. A rumour then reached Henry and his council that the imperial and French ambassadors were about to be withdrawn. Henry and England, especially southeast England, was in a panic. This was a situation Henry had not faced before. Ever since 1509, it had been England, siding with one or t'other of France or the Empire, sliding between the two of them like a jelly on a greasy plate. Now, suddenly, two enormous entities, either one of which dwarfed England's resources, were looking nastily in England's direction. Thomas Rottersley wrote, We will be a morsel between the choppers. But actually, only one of the choppers was probably needed, as long as the other chopper didn't get involved. Do not underplay the panic. The English merchants and royal fleets were assembled and reviewed. There were rumours of an army of 8,000 gathering in the low countries to invade. Beacons were prepared. Defences were dug along the south coast. Fortresses strengthened along the Scottish borders. In May, thousands of men were mustered at Mile End, just outside the city of London, the traditional place to muster troops. These men then marched into London and were reviewed by the king. War looked imminent, and England worried for her survival. In terms of the direction of religious policy, there were a couple of responses to this threat from abroad, and they would seem contradictory. In fact, seem is the wrong word. They were contradictory, running with the hair of evangelism and hunting with the hound of conservatism. As far as the hair bit is concerned, Henry put out diplomatic feelers to the Protestant powers of Germany. Cromwell was delighted. He even wrote specifically using the words evangelical mission, because he knew those words would annoy the emperor. In February, the vicegerund followed up with more pronouncements, minimising the value of ceremonies, emphasising that they were purely outward signs and tokens whereby we remember Christ. 
Now, it is very rare that Henry's most royal minister, Thomas Cromwell, ever looked wrong-footed. But here is one example where Henry appears to have looked him straight in the eye, dropped his shoulder, shifted his weight from foot to foot and left him for dead, for all the world like a 16th century poor dodge. Tigers fans might get that illusion. What I'm trying to say, in an overcomplicated kind of way, is that Henry misread the runes of his master's intentions and feelings. Because the alternative, hunt with the hounds strategy, was to demonstrate to his fellow Christian monarchs that in excommunicating the Pope was just on a power trip. Because look, he, Henry, was Mr. Religious Orthodoxy itself. His middle name was Orthodox. Evangelism? What evangelism? I have no doubt that Henry was a keen and serious theologian, or considered himself so to be. But it is interesting just how much tawdry earthly things like not being beaten to a pulp by your immediate neighbours seem to have affected his theology. To be a little fairer to the lad, Henry was also looking to quieten the disunity in his kingdom that to him signified a core responsibility of his kingship. Henry might have read the runes a little better, though. They were there to be interpreted. At Easter, for example, Henry very ostentatiously and very publicly carried out the most demonstrative act of seasonal ceremonies, creeping to the cross, and he made a point of receiving holy bread and holy water. His next target was to draw back just a little from Bible reading in English. The English Bible was now to be read in silence and quietly. This proclamation also condemned dissension, slander and railing, one part of them calling the other papist, the other part calling the other heretic. Parliament was due to be called at the end of April 1539, and there seemed no doubt that religion would once again be on the agenda, and it looked likely that Henry would be rowing back from evangelical changes and promoting more conservative policies. And it is this point, at this absolutely critical point, that Cromwell, the master of managing Parliament, fell ill. While he was at home in bed, the hammer blow fell. Clearly speaking with the king's approval, the Chancellor Audley announced that the king was eager to stop the diversity of opinion going around, and therefore a committee would be formed under the vicegerund. Unfortunately, the vicegerund was at home, vomiting into a small bowl, so a group of bishops, a combination of conservatives and evangelicals, went into bat to hammer out a definitive statement to end all disagreement. The hammer fell again, and this time with crushing force, when on the 16th of May it was the Duke of Norfolk that this time addressed the House. This in itself was a bad sign. Norfolk was the embodiment of lay conservatism. The prelates had failed to come to agreement, as, he added sarcastically, many in the House at the time had predicted. And so, Norfolk had six doctrinal questions on which the House would vote. These questions were framed in such a way as to really make only one answer possible. And the questions were largely a reassertion of traditional doctrine, reasserting transubstantiation and clerical celibacy, trying to ensure that confession was necessary by the law of God. After two weeks of debate and one week of quiet reading, the six articles, slightly revised, were passed. The evangelicals were crushed. Cromwell had been completely blindsided. Evangelicals called the act the whip with six strings. To make it worse, there were exceptionally severe penalties to enforce them. For example, to deny the royal presence in the bread and wine was an offence punishable by death, and no abjuration was allowed. One strike and you were out. 
For men like Cranmer and his evangelical bishops Latimer and Shaxton, it was a bitter blow. In fact, both Latimer and Shaxton were forced to resign their bishoprics. They had argued violently against the articles in the debates, especially on transubstantiation, and felt they could not stay. Actually, they were rather leniently dealt with by Henry, it must be said. Latimer basically went home for seven years on a royal stipend of a 100 marks, every so often popping up at the library at Lambeth Palace. Just to make it all a little worse, Henry chose this moment to summarily dismiss the Lutheran-German diplomatic delegation and the hair strategy was over. Poor old Cranmer suffered all kinds of agony. For the Reformation in England, his decision was a difficult and critical one. What would happen to reform if he left? But it was also personal. Cranmer was a married man, married with kids, in the confident belief that clerical celibacy would be formally banished in the fullness of time. Mrs Cranmer, living quietly and secretly at Ford Palace in Kent, was forced to pack her bags and return to Germany, where she had met her husband. Rather delightfully, whereas having a wife meant death under the Act, you could have yourself a concubine and just suffer a loss of goods. Actually, there's a rather nice little anecdote that when the Duke of Norfolk got home, happy with his work of putting a stop to the progress of evangelical reform, he remarked proudly to his chaplain, You see, we have hindered priests from having wives. To which his chaplain rather naughtily replied, And can your grace prevent also men's wives having priests? Just as bad for Cranmer, in July he would have to sit in his ecclesiastical courts in Kent, punishing people who essentially believed as he did. After Henry's death, he would say that the act of six articles was so much against the truth and common judgment of both divines and lawyers that if the king's majesty himself had not come personally into the Parliament House, those laws had never passed. Cranmer was probably being a bit optimistic, actually, but the quote makes his own views very clear. So, the question for Cranmer was whether or not he should stay or he should go. He decided to stay. Now, Cranmer was the kind of man much given to merciless self-laceration. And here is what he said to the Scottish Lutheran Alexander Ailes. Happy man that you are, you can escape. Would that I were at liberty to do the same. Truly, my sea would not hold me back. You must make haste to escape before the island may be cut off. Unless you are willing to sign the decree as I have done, compelled by fear, for I repent of what I have done, and had I known that my only punishment would have been deposition from the archbishopric of a truth I would not have subscribed. See what I mean? He really doesn't try to put a gloss on it, does he? Cranmer's biographer, Dermot McCulloch, makes the argument that behind the self-flagellation, Cranmer stayed out of duty. Duty to the king, duty to the cause. It was a good job for the evangelical cause that he did stay. Cromwell's survival through the years of reaction would be critical. It seems pretty clear that Henry himself recognised what he was putting his favourite cleric through. As we have noted, Henry liked Cranmer, personally. During the debates, one John Gostwick launched accusations of heresy at Cranmer's sermons. Henry buried him, ordering him to apologise to Cranmer personally and promising, I will sure make him both a poor Gostwick and otherwise punish him to the example of others. He also gave Cranmer the chance to miss the final vote in Parliament, which would have been a nice way of salving Cranmer's conscience, but typically Cranmer would not have it. And when the Act was passed, Henry ordered a dinner of reconciliation at Cranmer's Lambeth Palace, and he set Norfolk up to say some nice words. 
Now this is an occasion at which I would like to have been a fly on the wall. So, when everyone was sitting around, trying to look as though they were having a nice time and not dying to gouge each other's eyes out with spoons, Norfolk said his piece, which consisted of praising Cranmer by saying how fantastic he was, especially when compared to that utterly appalling and dreadful Woolsey. As he said it, the truth in a story would suggest that he looked not at Cranmer, but at Cromwell, and he duly got the rise out of Cromwell he was looking for in defence of Cromwell's beloved Woolsey, and a slanging match ensued between the two while everyone else carefully studied their fingernails. It's not recorded if the word plonker was used, which is a shame. There was more encouragement from Cranmer. Ralph Morris, Cranmer's secretary, recorded a comment Cromwell made to his friend Cranmer at the supper. You were born in a happier hour, I suppose, for do or say what you will. The king will always well take it at your hand. And I must needs confess that in some things I have complained of you unto his majesty, but all in vain, for he will never give credit against you whatsoever is laid to your charge. It's a nice look behind the curtain, refreshing bit of candour from one downcast minister to another. With hindsight, though they felt terrible at the time, Cranmer, Cromwell and their fellow evangelicals need not have felt quite so crushed but they'd got used to a continual stream of small victories and advances. The six articles represented a stop to that forward movement, but it didn't really represent a backwards movement. Henry had proved himself more conservative than Cranmer and Cromwell might have liked. But the word purgatory did not actually appear, though it wasn't banished as they would have liked, nor did the word transubstantiation actually appear in the final articles. Confession was included, but was still not required by the laws of God nor were the six articles in any way a complete compendium of faith. They covered only specific topics. Good Catholic, though he might consider himself, Henry continued to vary significantly from the Pope in matters of doctrine, quite apart from the royal supremacy. In confirmation of this, Henry proved remarkably forgiving of those who fell foul of the new articles. With some enthusiasm, Gardiner and the Conservative bishops started rounding up evangelicals under the Act, 500 were rounded up almost immediately, only for Henry to issue a pardon for giving all his subjects, all heresies, treasons, felonies, with many other offences committed before the 1st of July 1540. Despite the vicious penalties, only six people were to suffer death under the Articles. Actually, 200 of the 500 were rounded up in London alone by the new Bishop of London, a man called Edmund Bonner. The Conservative bishop, Bishop Stokesley, had died in September 1539, lamenting that he had not stood shoulder to shoulder with John Fisher originally to deny the royal supremacy in 1532. Actually, the Evangelicals had rather celebrated Bonner's appointment, and boy did they get that wrong. There's one final codicil to this in a lovely story that Peter Ackroyd relates in his book on the Tudors, about which book I put a short review on the website, by the way. The story was recorded again by the same secretary, Ralph Morris. So, there was Cranmer, brooding in the Archbishop's palace, thinking over the catastrophe in which he'd just participated. One obvious way for an academic to purge himself of evil humours was to get it down on paper, and so he did just that, writing down all his objections to the six articles in a nice, leather-bound notebook. Just as he dealt with Henry's objections to the bishop's book, he then got Ralph to carry the book secretly and carefully across the river to the king. Offset Ralph and joined others in a wherry to take him across the river, Kingwoods. 
Meanwhile, by the river though, there was something of a panic going on because a bear had managed to break loose. Yes, a bear. And the bear headed for the river and freedom with his owner in hot pursuit and plunged in to escape his owner. At this point, Worry met Bear, Bear met Worry. All the passengers saw the bear heading towards them, leapt for the safety of the waters. But Ralph, conscious of his book, remained firmly in place, clutching the all-important book. And of course, the all-important, very illegal and heretical notebook. Then, to his horror, the bear actually clambered aboard the Worry. So now, finally, Ralph leapt, notebook forgotten at last. When he got to the shore, in his horror, Ralph found the precious and incriminating notebook in the possession of a priest. Bad news followed bad. This was a conservative priest who angrily accused Ralph of treason for writing of the six articles. So, in a panic, Ralph admitted that this was from the Archbishop. This had the opposite effect. Now the priest was doubly keen to turn it over to his bishop and see retribution visited on the Archbishop's head. Ralph fortunately kept his head and went straight to Cromwell. He'd done the right thing. Cromwell acted to defend his friend and ally, called the priest to him, gave him a verbal clip round the ear hole, and returned the offending article to Cranmer. It's a nice little vignette of the relationships between Archbishop Cromwell and King, of the nervousness at court, and the danger of religious debate. So, I will leave it there, with the pendulum of the King's mind swinging away from Cromwell and his buddies. Next week, however, we're not going to continue that story, no indeed. We are instead going to step sideways, and talk about Cromwell and some critical elements in his so-called revolution in government, the relationship with the regions, with Ireland and with Wales. If you are a member taking part in the Thomas Cromwell Jamboree, don't forget to do the quiz by the 11th of February if you want to be entered into the draw. Meanwhile, thank you all very much for listening and for all your comments and things. Good luck everyone and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.